Morning, citizens. If you have a Bible, once again, I just want to ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 4. Do you ever talk to yourself? Have you ever um, maybe even been caught talking to yourself, you know, in a moment of anger or maybe just like meandering around the house or out on the street and suddenly you realize that's not your inside voice, you actually like talking and people are noticing you? Um, if you have, um, this psalm might sound familiar to you, okay? Now, I sometimes reference movies and, you know, different types of stories to get people um, thinking about what we're actually talking about, and I think I've referenced Fiddler on the Roof more than any other movie, you know, hands down. And so maybe it's like a prerequisite for uh, coming to Citizens is watching the movie Fiddler on the Roof, but in that movie, the main character, um, multiple times throughout the movie, is seen having this conversation with God. Usually it's in moments of confusion or disruption into his life. Um, in the movie, it's, you know, it's related to his daughters getting married and those transitions. But then it's also times where he's just struggling with um, the Jewish people and him as a Jewish man uh, being persecuted and the struggle with that. And there's this conversation back and forth of questions and answers and somehow trying to make sense of the world around him and the things that are happening to him. And this passage in Psalm 4 is that very same idea. It is a conversation back and forth between um, David and God. And, and listen, I'll, I'll be honest, it's a little bit confusing at times, you know, if you've read it, which you probably just did in your missional families. But as we look at it this morning, even, it's a little bit like, okay, sometimes David's talking to God, sometimes he's reflecting on himself, sometimes it seems like he's talking to other people, or maybe it's meant to be reflective of the whole nation. There's a lot going on here. And yet, in the end, it's a coherent prayer to God from David in his moment of struggle and lament. And um, like we said last week, this is in a series of, you know, five psalms in a row here of lament and difficulty, and Psalm 4 has us landing there again, this pain and confusion. Psalm 4 is also interesting that it, it fits together nicely with Psalm 5. The two of them have often been used together because Psalm 4 is, has been called a evening prayer. You might even have a Bible that has that as a heading, um, an evening prayer. And then Psalm 5 is a prayer for the morning. Okay, so if you look at Psalm 4 and look at the last verse in the psalm, it says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. So it's, it's thought that this psalm was used by David um, at some point in his life, and then it was used by the nation of Israel and even, you know, into the New Testament and into our modern day as an evening prayer, a prayer to kind of, you know, calm down the worries of the day and be brought in line with right thinking and, and right thinking specifically as it relates to God. And then chapter 5, which we'll look at next week, is this prayer for the morning, okay? So in Psalm 5 verse 3, it says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So there's, there's this anticipation. So Psalm 4 and 5 are these 
two psalms side by side that kind of work together. But I just want to say also as a side note, and I probably should have said this from week one, the psalms were meant to be memorized. Okay, the psalms were meant to be um, taken in as hymns, as poetry, and it was supposed to be that they were portable in a sense. Now, for many of us, you know, we have um, phones and we have access to um, scripture at any time, almost at any given point, because our, you know, our technology is with us. But the Psalms were meant to be memorized and taken in so that in your moments of depression and fear and anxiety, and in your moments of joy and exhilaration, they would be there for you. They would be on the edge of your tongue, on the tip of your tongue. And they would not only be like information, like what we get from our smartphones, but they would act as a catalyst for transformation. So the Psalms are meant to be taken in and memorized so that they can make a difference, not just information, but transformation. So you'll see they are, you know, there's, the Psalms are full of um, imagery and parallelism where there's like things repeated and it's, it's poetic in nature so that you can take it in and memorize it. So this morning, we're just going to look at this Psalm real quickly, um, Psalm 4, and we're going to look at it in two ways. The first way is talking to God, and the second one is talking to yourself. Okay? Talking to God in the first part, and then talking to yourself. Let's begin by reading Psalm chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 again. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know the Lord, that he has set you apart, the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. So this psalm almost starts what sounds like to me, it almost starts like in a panic. You know, David is like, God, are you listening? God, are you hearing me? I, I'm in a moment of pain and struggle again, and are you there for me? And he's pleading and he's asking, is God there? He begins by talking to God. And it's the key word again, and I think I said this last week, but the key word for us to kind of anchor on and, and really land our feet on is the first word of verse 3, but. Okay, so in the midst of his kind of panicky beginning, David is asking God, and he's talking to God, and he's a little bit here, he's a little bit there, he's a little bit chaotic. And if we think of it ourselves um, in our own lives, that's kind of how life works when you're in pain and struggle, right? You have all kinds of thoughts, your mind might be racing, you know, maybe if you're having an argument with someone, you're talking in your head, and you're usually winning the argument, okay, but you are talking and you're chaotic, and it's into that moment of talking to God in this chaos that David lands his feet, and it comes in two parts in verse three. The first is that this truth of you are set apart. Did you see that in verse three? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. In talking to God, this is what David reminds himself of, that God has set him apart. You know, in the Old Testament, 
God specifically took for himself a people, okay? He, he raised up a nation, the nation of Israel, and they were to be a people who were in relationship with God. They knew him. They were known by him. It was deeply personal. And that relationship was meant to be a witness to the nations around them. So it wasn't just for Israel, as much as it was, but it was also to be a testimony to others around them of what it would look like for a people who would be in relationship with the God of the universe, the maker of everything. And in the New Testament, we're also given this image of a unique relationship. The, the relationship goes one step further, and, and that's why Paul calls it a mystery, right? Because it was like they didn't even realize it in the Old Testament. But he said, here is the mystery that we become a part of God's family. And throughout the New Testament, the, the writers of, you know, the epistles and all the letters throughout the, the New Testament try to help us understand what does that mean? What does it look like? One of the ones that I often go back to is Paul's explanation in Galatians. And he tries to use the, you know, the typical Roman family to make sense of what this new relationship looks like. So he talks about the context of children being under the care of like uh, tutors or, you know, the, the slaves of the home. They would have been taken care of and they wouldn't have enjoyed all the benefits of the family yet because they were still like in this infantile state. <clears throat> But then there would come a day where they would be brought into the family and they would often they would own the business and it was kind of this idea of like they would own the vision and be full members of the family. And the, the point that Paul was making in Galatians is you don't want to go back to where the, you're this, you know, you're not fully a part of God's family. You want to move forward and enter into all that God has for you. And so Paul says this in Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So there's that kind of imagery of this Roman family of a kid in the family, but not fully entered into everything yet. And he says in verse 3, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. So he's saying, okay, that is kind of a good picture for us. We were, we were lost in our sin. We were not totally entered into what God had for us. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul is trying to help us understand this is who we are now. You now are entered in and you take on this role of being a son who's going to you know, he's going to be the heir of everything that his father has. Now we as men and women, we inherit everything that God has because we are part of his family. And so even David here in the Old Testament, verse 3, is, is trying to remind himself as he talks to God that God has actually set him apart. So David, in the middle of his turmoil and in the middle of all of his struggle, he's remembering that he's actually a part of God's family. He is set apart by God. He is, you know, to use New Testament language, he is elect, right? He is part of God's chosen family. 
And this is what he needed reminding of in the midst of the storm. But not only that, not only set apart for God, but also look at the second part of verse 3, that he is heard by God. So it says this, the Lord hears when I call him. So he set me apart and the Lord hears when I call him. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but I can definitely remember multiple times where, you know, you're in a group and maybe everybody's telling, sharing stories and it's, you know, everybody's laughing and having a good time. And then suddenly you start into a story. You start talking, okay? Maybe you're like a couple sentences in and then like a kid comes in crying or someone drops a plate or something very distracting happens and everybody turns away and you're like mid-sentence and the story just like drops to the floor. It's kind of funny when you think about it but it's not so funny when you're actually doing it. You're like, oh man, I was just about to get into this and nobody is listening. God hears you. You don't get halfway through a story to God and it kind of drops to the floor because he's distracted by this thing over there or he's distracted by some crisis in another part of the world. God is so big, so magnificent that like David says here, he hears you in the middle of your struggle. As David is talking to God here, he realizes that God actually hears me. God hears the things that I'm saying to him when I'm in prayer to him or when I'm just mumbling to him. God is able to hear all those things. The word of God through the New Testament just like in, reinforces this, just kind of gives this some good solid foundation. In 1 Peter 3, 12, it says this, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. Revelation 5.8 gives this amazing imagery. It says, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Okay, now I don't know how prayers are collected in bowls, and maybe that imagery is all just for us to really get the bottom line that God hears all of our prayers and they are kept by him. They're not just some random things that are spoken. They are not forgotten. They don't drop on the floor. Nobody, you know, they're lost in space. God hears them. And so David, in talking to God, is reassured, is like, is made firm in the chaos of his mind, in the chaos of this conversation that he is set apart by God, and that God hears him, even in the midst of the pain that he's in. But then it turns, okay, and in verses 4 and 5 specifically, it turns where David begins to talk to himself, okay? So part two is talking to yourself. Now Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, in a quote from one of his books, he talks about this idea of talking to yourself. And he was talking about, you know, spiritual depression and discouragement. So it kind of fits actually with chapter four, but he, he writes this, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Maybe yes, I don't know. But 
Far from it, he says. This is the very essence of the wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? So Lloyd-Jones is saying, listen, all you're doing when you're in your state of depression and in your state of discouragement is you're listening to yourself. And he says what you need to be doing is talking to yourself. You need to be recounting things about God that are true and that are right. And how you do that is going to be different because the Word of God even gives us different ways to do it. But you don't just need to be listening to yourself. You need to be talking to yourself. And so one of the ways that we see that happen is in verses 4 and 5. And let's read those here. It says this, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now, you might think that what I'm about to say is the opposite, actually, of what Lloyd-Jones is saying. But what David is saying here, especially in verse 4, is that there is a power in being silent. There's a power in being silent. Now, didn't I just say that, or didn't Lloyd-Jones just say, you need to be talking to yourself? Well, part of that is actually creating space where we are hearing, we are talking the words of God to ourselves, where we are saying that. And how do we actually get that, the word of God, into us? One of the ways David talks about here is the power of silence, the power of pondering. And let me just say, silence is really hard to come by in our day and age, okay? I'm probably getting some internal amens there. But we live in a time and in a space in history where stopping and sitting in silence is really difficult. It is hard to do. Um, and, and I am speaking from someone who um, loves to put music on, loves to, you know, keep the noise going. So I'm not speaking as a master of this. I'm not speaking as like someone who has um, been able to do what David is talking about in verse 4. I'm talking about someone who has also struggled with finding space for silence to hear from God. In Neil Postman's book titled Amusing Ourselves to Death, he begins by contrasting two um, books by two authors, uh, George Orwell and Aldous Huxley. Okay, and they both wrote books um, that were looking into the future. Okay, they were they were way back and before the computer revolution and all that, but they were looking into the future, kind of wondering what is the future world going to look like. And here's what Postman writes in his the foreword of his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He says, contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an external externally imposed oppression. But Huxley's vision has no big brother required to deprive people from their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacity to think. And then he goes on to say this, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. Okay, he's thinking of like 1984 or something. But what Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who would want to read one. Okay, so two different kinds of visions. And we live in a day and age where um, 
we are surrounded and technology is trying to take as much of our time as possible. Now listen, I'm not a hater of technology. I'm so thankful for computers, smartphones, and the tech that we have in the world that, you know, helps us in so many various ways. But let's also not be naive to the fact that tech has stolen hours and hours and hours of our lives and has made it more and more difficult to actually pause and think. Last year, I don't know if you saw it on Netflix, there was a movie called The Social Dilemma and it was, you know, all the rage, people were talking about it. And, and basically it was a documentary slash drama about um, social media and the tech world. And it had interviews with all kinds of inventors and architects, you know, behind Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest. And the basic premise of the movie was this, that these companies are spending billions and billions of dollars and hiring thousands and thousands of people to try to keep you and me on their phones and their apps specifically as long as possible. That's what the social dilemma was saying. And it was talking about the reality of the more you use and consume these things, the more money they obviously make. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's good for their bottom end. And what we are left with then is a society of people who are on their devices almost all the time in some way or some fashion. And so we're not, I don't think we should be left with the idea that it's a lost cause or, you know, it's impossible um, or that you can't say no to these things. But if we're honest, it's hard to stop and pause and sit in some silence. But it's biblical, okay? The Word of God actually encourages us, and we see God's people actually doing things that reflect silence and pausing and stopping the chaos of the moment. Psalm 46.10 says this, Cease striving and know that I am God. And in the NIV it says, Be still and know that I am God. Zechariah 2.13 says, Be silent, all flesh before the Lord. Be silent. Jesus probably is our clearest example. You know, there's numerous instances in his life where he went and had times of silence, had times of prayer, times of isolation where he was alone or where he was alone with his disciples. In Mark 1.35, it says, And rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place where he prayed. Then later in Mark 6, listen to this little, in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 30, some amazing little verses here that give us some insight into Jesus' ministry and his thinking when it came to being silent before God. In chapter 6, verse 30, it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So this is like, here's what happened. This is crazy amazing. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Jesus is like, okay, in this moment, what you need actually is you need some like pause from the chaos, even the good chaos of what is happening around you. Then he goes on to say this, For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure time even to eat. So talk about busy. We're not the only ones, right? We're not the only ones with our apps and our phones and our jobs. Jesus in his ministry with the disciples, they have no leisure time even to eat. They are busy from morning to night, going, going, going. And what do they do? I mean, 
are they happy that God is working around them? Absolutely, they are totally happy about that. But what are they called to do? Take some time. Away from the chaos. And lastly, verse 32 here says, And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. They went by themselves. So remember, David here is in trouble, right? David here is in all kinds of difficulty, and he's talking back and forth. There's confusion. Most of our responses, I know mine would be, let's solve the problem. Let's, like, get away from here, get away from these people, or, you know, do something to solve it. And David here says, actually, in the middle of all the chaos, in the middle of everything that's going on, stop. Ponder. Be silent. Okay? Depending on what your translation says, you get this right in the middle of chapter 4 here. It's just stop, ponder, and be silent. But to be silent and to have moments like that is a discipline, right? This is not something that happens uh, easily, and I, I'm the first to give testimony to that. But it's like, um, you know, when you're silent for maybe the first time for like a minute or for a few minutes, you're like, whoa, there's all kinds of things kicking around in my head. It can almost be scary. It's like hearing noises in the night, okay? You're not sure what those noises are. They kind of freak you out. And maybe that happens also with, you know, moments of silence in your life. But silence teaches us to listen. And that's what David is asking us to do here is to think to ponder. It teaches us to listen. Silence also teaches us to slow down. Okay, so for most of us, life is going to be long, and it's going to be full of seasons, and our growth in Christ is going to happen over years, not over days or hours. The growth of Citizens Church is going to happen over years, not over weeks. And taking time to actually be silent and slow down and to ponder in the midst of the pain and chaos helps us understand that God is working in the slowness. So, how do we begin to do this? Let me just give you a couple of um, ways to get started if this is something that's new for you. And I'll just say, we're going to be coming back to um, you know, silence and other things in the fall when we get into the Gospel of Mark, because we'll be seeing how Jesus actually lives and how he uh, disciples the disciples around him. But let me just encourage you, start small, okay? So um, start with like before bed, um, rather than uh, ending the night on Netflix, rather than ending the night on, you know, Instagram, end your night before you go to bed, um, in like a moment of silence or a moment of silent prayer to God or maybe reading a psalm and just reflecting on that. Or maybe it's in the morning, okay? Maybe you're not good at night. Maybe it's in the morning um, with a tea or a coffee and again, reading a psalm or simply sitting there even for like try for one minute to sit in silence. Or maybe you find your own way of doing it, okay? And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, man, if you're like a mom or a dad with little kids around, maybe the minute or two minutes that you find are in the shower, okay? If that's even possible. Maybe kids are finding you there too. Or maybe it's like in the car ride to the grocery store, somewhere finding a minute or two to pause, now remember, this is not uh, this is not like New Age meditation. You are not starting, you know, the first and newest monastery in Elmira. 
This is you actually connecting and hearing from God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, and let me, let me close with these last thoughts here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, There is an indifference or a negative attitude towards silence which sees it in disparagement with God's revelation in the word. So Bonhoeffer is saying, man, there's like a, uh, a, some people see it as a fight between silence and the word of God. And silence kind of kicks out the word of God. He says, this view that misinterprets silence is a ceremonial gesture, or it's as a musical desire to get beyond the word. This is to miss the essential relationship of silence to the word. Listen to this. This is the key line. Silence is the simple stillness of the individual under the word of God. So that's what we are to be drawn to in our silence. And what we need to be wanting, you know, to rise to our minds is actually God's word and the truths about God. And that's what the silence is actually for. It's not like a Middle Eastern meditation where you're trying to empty yourself. What you're actually trying to do is fill yourself in that silence Talk to yourself about who God is and his reality. So David in Psalm 4 is reminding himself in in this conversation of talking to God and talking to himself that his greatest joy is actually found in God. And it's not found in the removal of problems. It's not found in revenge, but it's found in this close relationship with God. And so I just thought maybe I'd end our uh, end this message with another poem or a song. It's actually a song that we've sung before at Citizens called Come to Me by Bethel Music. If we were in person, I'd probably have someone sing this, but since we're not doing that, and I'm not going to sing it here, I'm just going to end by reading some of the lines of the song. It says this, I am the Lord your God. I go before you now. I stand beside you. I'm all around you. Though you feel I'm far away, I'm closer than your breath. I am with you more than you know. I am the Lord, your peace. No evil will conquer you. Steady now your heart and mind. Come into my rest. Oh, let your faith arise. Lift up your weary head. I am with you wherever you go. Come to me. I'm all you need. Come to me. I'm everything. I am your anchor in the wind and the waves. I am your steadfast, so don't be afraid. Though your heart and flesh may fail, may fail you, I'm your faithful strength. I am with you wherever you go. Come to me, I'm all you need. Come to me, I'm everything. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reminder in Psalm 4 that in the midst of our conversations with you, that we are yours, and that in the midst of our moments of quiet and reflection, that you remind us that you are our greatest joy. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us this morning that we would sense that and that we would grow deeper in the reality of your love for us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.